Welcome back, everybody, to the Talking Sportsbooks podcast. And in this edition, the focus is all about the World Cup. We're going to be talking to a selection of authors who have released books with a World Cup theme. Now, that includes Aidan Williams, who's just released The Nearly Men, the story of the greatest teams that failed to win the World Cup. And that, of course, will pay reference to those legendary Dutch teams of the 1970s, in particular 1974. Plus, we will also remember the Danish dynamite era of 1986. Remember, Prebenelkia and Michael Laudrup unleashed on the world. Until, of course, that fateful day when they ran into a vulture, Emilia Butragueño of Spain. Now, Brazil 1982, The Glorious Failure, was written by Stuart Horsfield. We will look at highlights from an era when everybody expected Tele Santana's team to win. And of course, why wouldn't you? They had Socrates, they had Falcao, they had Cerezo, and they had, of course, the white Pelé, Zico. Italy, though, had Paolo Rossi, who had the last word there. And finally, Chris Evans' book, How to Win a World Cup, looks at everything from logistics, selection, captains, personalities, expectation, in fact, everything that you could possibly think of that you need to win a World Cup. It's all there, and Chris will be talking about that. Just before we get there, quick word for our sponsors at Prime Podcast at primepodcast.co.uk who deal with everything related to podcasts and podcasting from producing and presenting them to providing audio content for them and training in every aspect of how to actually make a podcast. And there is more because they have a special Black Friday deal available from November the 17th. Uh, when you get in contact, uh, use the code PODCAST25 and you will get 25% off. So moving on, Aidan Williams has written and released a new book. It is called The Nearly Men, the story of the greatest teams never to have lifted the trophy. He joined me to look back at this book. And first stop, well, it could only be one place, really, couldn't it? West Germany, 1974. So, yeah. so the first thing I wanted to say about when you when you buy a book like this is you get it home, you open it, you look at the listings, and then you try and work out if the person that wrote it made any glaring omission. <laughs> and then you have that word, yeah. you know, these the greatest uh, nearly teams. So not just great, they have to be greatest. So what was the criteria that you adopted for inclusion? And how close uh, did England's team in 1970, uh, Bulgaria or Romania in the in the 90s and Croatia, how, how close did those come to an inclusion? <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting point because it was very, very tough. I think beyond three teams that probably most people will agree on uh, in terms of nearly men who who could have or should have won. I think beyond that, it becomes very subjective and very personal, uh, which is something I allude to in this as well. These are my picks and not necessarily those other people would pick. So yes, there were some I really had to struggle with. Essentially, I I didn't sort of set out with the intention of, of only having one from any given tournament, but 
the way the sort of narrative was working once I was delving into them more, it wouldn't have made full sense to have more than one from the same competition. Um, for example, one I did wrestle with, not one that you just mentioned, but I'll come on to them as well, was was France in the mm, 80s. Yes. Um, you know, I remember that oh. epic semi-final in 1982 yeah. with West Germany. I mean, that, that that's about as sporting tragic <laughs> as it comes, really, isn't it? Um, but no, to me, they were they were good, but there's a couple of reasons not to include them. Was one, they were overshadowed in my mind by the Brazil side, and therefore, how could I claim France were the nearly men if I'm extolling the virtues of Socrates, Zico et al. Um, and also, their narrative had a victory uh, in between two World Cups. It you know, sure wasn't a World Cup victory, but it was a Euros victory. So the story of that team had a success. Uh, so that kind of that kind of came into it in a number of uh, a number of cases. Um, England, nineteen seventy. I think, yes, it, it was certainly one that I considered for a while, but again, there was the two factors ruled out in my mind. One was uh, the fact they were vastly overshadowed by a team that did win, but I think one that uh, you, you couldn't argue with that victory very very much because that that's about as perfect a world cup win uh in, in as it went through pele and rivellino jairzinho and all of this uh about as perfect a world cup victory as you could as you could wish for uh when we look back on it so i think that was one reason to not include them uh the other was maybe a less strong reason was the fact that they'd, they'd won it just before and many of the same mm-hmm. characters were there uh so again it's like when, I, when I'm looking in the chapters, I'm not just looking at just that tournament. It's a little bit of the lead in, a little bit of around it and, and the aftermath as well. So I think it needed it needed to have that all-encompassing story where tragic failure <laughs> was the core of it. Um, 1994 is an interesting one. Bulgaria and Romania, I, I absolutely loved that summer, probably even more so because England weren't in it and you, know, you don't have any of the anxieties of of supporting your team. You can just enjoy the fun. And it, it was great fun, that World Cup. Um, oddly, of course, I've focused on the team that wasn't there <laughs> at all, <laughs> which, which is a whole other matter. Um, those that were, yes, it, it the, the great stories Romania. I, I remember their, their penalty shootout with Sweden and thinking so disappointed that they hadn't got through. Sweden were fun as well, but not as fun as Romania. Uh, and equally, Stoichkov uh, and the story of Bulgaria was great. But I think both of them ran their course uh, in that particular tournament. Um, and, and that's why I think there's a number of teams you could probably pick from. Yes, Nigeria. it was. It was a great story mm. as well. And then then obviously Italy themselves. I mean, th- this book, to, to go into the theme again, doesn't include the two teams who lost a World Cup final on penalties. So there's that Italy plus France in um, 2006. And that's as close as you can come to victory without without getting it. But again, that Italy team, um, Baggio, i uh, I, I preferred their narrative, and I think this is the Italian perspective too from the people I spoke to. They saw 1990 as the bigger failure. That was when they felt they should have won it. 1994, they well, they were a poor side dragged through by a genius, really, uh, to my mind. Um, and sure, they came incredibly close to winning it, but the, the better story for Italy was the one that came before um, so yes, it, it, to, to come back to the question, it was very, very tough, very, very tough to 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 make the picks beyond a few that I was quite clear on. Uh, 
and more to the point to exclude some <laughs> that possibly others might have included. But yeah, it, it's yeah, personal it opinion is. though, isn't it? And that's where everyone will have their views and, and they will differ. There is only one place to start when you look through this book. It's the Dutch. In 1974, the, the team of the score, compared to the Beatles, uh, Johan Cruyff uh, was was your John Lennon, as you say. The uh, the team's legacy yeah. it is one of beauty and still is. The, the 74 team uh, emotions akin to fine art appreciation caused people to rethink what football was. And this was a good point, really. Um, is it to crown a winner or is it entertainment uh, and a way of delighting and inspiring uh, to all around? Well, absolutely. And, you know, when Cruyff said um, perhaps they were the w real winners as the world remembers them more, to me that, that is absolutely, well, it's the essence of this book for one thing. I guess it's the inspiration of it too. Um, but I think he's correct because they have left a lasting legacy far beyond... Uh, simple defeat on the football field, the impact that team has had on so many people. And as you rightly say there, it wasn't simply how they played, it was the whole style and manner around them, the sort of culture that they were representing, um, a certain freedom. It was, an, it was the perfect team at the perfect yeah. time. Yes, the, where... the style represented the changing times from the 60s to the 70s, not yeah. only football, but culture and life, everything that went with it. Exactly, and this this side encapsulated that in, in vivid orange as well, which I think helps. Uh, with with the man at the helm, who you know he was, he was kind of the coach on the field as well as much as a player and inspiration behind it all, um, directing directing things like a conductor on the pitch, I guess uh, in some ways. Um, it was so stylish, so so cool, so elegant, and yet fatally flawed, I guess, in the end because they didn't. Well, as, as, as some of the players have said, they simply forgot to score a second in the final, um, content with their goal, with, with West Germany not even having touched the ball, which was uh, that's quite a spectacular thing to achieve as well in a World Cup final. But then they, they sort of toyed with West Germany. They, it was it, There's talk about they, they were seeking to humiliate them, but it was humiliation by possession, really. It wasn't taunting or showboating, as we might think today. It was... It was Oh, I, I don't know about that. I think the, I think the <laughs> more you the more you delve into the relationship between uh, people and the, the the two nations, and and I never understood the the depth of that feeling when I was working with with Eurosport, and we were based in Paris, and we used to uh, produce this program called Eurogoals every week. Everybody all used to work together in the same offices. So we would have the Germans and the Spanish and the Dutch and the and the English and the French. And the, I mean, it was a melting pot to see yeah, how they interacted between between the two. I, I, I think if there was ever a potential that they could embarrass, they would. I mean, it was the right I mean, time though, wasn't it, really? Oh, totally. Because when you look at the uh, at club football coming into this, this World Cup, Obviously, we never used to see European football on television in the, well, when we were growing up in the in the 70s, or very little of it. So we didn't really know an awful lot about, you know, the Feyenoord team that won the European Cup or the, the three Ajax teams that followed it with, uh, with Rhinus Mikkels there. How much of a masterstroke was it, or maybe not, to actually have uh, Rhinus Mikkels there? I think it, it was, because 
this is where it all begun. I and mean, you're right there, Feyenoord first, and then Ajax had become um, European royalty in the in the early seventies, uh, leading up to this tournament. I guess this World Cup is the kind of culmination of that peak of Dutch football, and the fact it had come from almost nowhere. You know, Dutch football was was nothing before this era. They'd, they'd been in in World Cups in the nineteen thirties, but not really done anything, and there'd been nothing since. It was it had been an amateur game. It, it was it was coming up from such low beginnings. Michels uh, and Cruyff, of course, and there were there were others who'd come before Michels, but he sort of took it on another level, um, especially when he had Cruyff alongside him, of course, at, at Ajax. Um, took it on another level. And I think even if it was as much symbolic as anything else, it, it kind of added to the it added to the, the appeal of that side that it was it was like getting the gang back together because he, he'd gone off to Barcelona um, prior to all of this, as had Cruyff in, um, in 1973 with a bit of a falling out with his Ajax teammates, and yet they all had to come together again, uh, wearing a different colour, of course, but come together again to, to, uh, to, to push things on to perfection. And I think obviously the schooling that a lot of them had been through at Ajax was, was key to this, but they weren't all from, from Ajax, of course, in the national side, but that was, that was the method. That was the tone. That was the sort of education it was all based on. They were also, and I think Michels was, was, well, and Cruyff actually were both, um, both strong on this was they were sort of pushed almost into going even more total football than maybe they'd intended with, 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 Injury to Barry Holshoff, who, who couldn't go, and they replaced him as a centre-back with ball-playing midfielders, which was so far ahead of its time when you think more recently of people like Mascherano playing in the, those positions and so it on. It was Ari Hahn, That's, wasn't it, that they replaced him exactly. with? Exactly, yeah. Um, and then equally the goalkeeper situation. So Jan van Beveren was, was the sort of strongest uh, or generally perceived as, as the best Dutch goalkeeper at that time. But that's in a shot-stopping capacity. There, there, was, there was he'd had, he'd been injured, and then he he came back for a friendly before the tournament. But he he wanted to play the whole thing, and Mikkels only wanted to play part of the time. And they had a big bust up, and that was the end of him. He was gone, and they replaced him with Jan Jan Youngblood, who played for FC Amsterdam, a, a lowly a lowly club in the capital. Um, he played once for the national team. That was more than a decade earlier and it was only five minutes or 15 minutes at the end of a friendly a huge friendly defeat and he let in one goal in that as well and that was it for his international career but suddenly he was back because he was a ball playing goalkeeper he was like the sweeper keeper that um that is now de rigueur uh, in football he was that's that's what he was back then so these issues have kind of nudged the dutch this dutch team even further into total football than than maybe they their first intentions were. Maybe maybe this was part of the plan was to to play this to play to this extent all along, but circumstance helped it on its way. And I think Mikkels deserves a lot of credit for that. But obviously Cruyff was uh, was in his ear as well, those, no doubt during during all those selections too. Those two had a very uh, special relationship. Mikkels, when he arrived as a coach, it was nine years before when he rocked up at Ajax in that old battered Skoda that he turned up in on day one. A, a former PE teacher, teacher for deaf children, but he knew uh, the, the the Cruyff family. And he knew about his upbringing and some of the issues that he's had. And he sort of took him under his wing. So theirs was a, a special relationship. 
Absolutely. I mean, they they were of one mind when it came to football and how it should be. And yeah, like I say, they they it was a lengthy special relationship as well. And obviously it will continue in Barcelona, um, outside of the Netherlands as well. I was going to say, people, you mentioned total football. Uh, and th- this is followed on from, again, another team in the in the book. You talked about the, the great Hungarian uh, teams in the 1950s. You know, Ari Khan talking about total football, saying that uh, people talk about it as a, as a system, but it isn't a system um, because it's basically all of the players playing all of the time, even if you are yeah. 60 metres from the ball, you are constantly moving, you are always looking for space. Uh, and this was this was it, wasn't it? This was what Cruyff talked about all the time. This was the mantra, space, got to find space, constantly move, looking for space, to go obviously with that, with the pressing as well, when they didn't have possession. Yeah, totally. And, and this was, you know, th- this seems normal now to us, but, you know, 40 years ago or, or more, this was... Sorry, okay, it's even longer than that. It's nearly fifty years ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it was. This was revolutionary uh, to do it to this extent. And you're quite right, Ari Hahn. He, he phrased it like it's a state of mind rather than a than a system of play. It's just constant, always moving, always evolving. It's like one morphing object that's it's constantly in motion, constantly seeking extra space, the gaps. And as one moves, so does everyone else to to rotate round, to fill in, to to probe in different places. It always had to be constant. And this was, you know, this was building on, as you mentioned there, Hungary, on what had gone before. Hungary had the, the deep-lying striker playing between the lines that so confused England in the 50s. Um, that that was, you know, a precursor to what came later with the Dutch. And he could easily equally say the same about Austria in the 30s ahead of Hungary, all schooled in the same Danubian way uh, in those air, in those Central European areas of slightly withdrawn strikers, and it each built on the last. And then the Dutch just took it to such extremes uh, with this constant movement. That that was, it was confusing to many in in some ways. You know, the the game against Argentina that they had in the second round group, which such a spectacular victory. And this is a, a side who would go on and win the World Cup only four years later. Um, but at this point, they were so sort of static and old-worldly. Uruguay as well, when they played them, it, it was so static compared to the, the perpetual motion in, in orange that was in front of them that, that was just on another level. There is an irony here, of course, because had something called VAR existed in the 1970s, the Dutch wouldn't have even made it to the finals in that game <laughs> against Belgium when uh, Jan Verheyen had a late goal disallowed. He did. And Belgium became a, a, an unfortunate statistic in World Cup qualifying in that they, they didn't concede any goals throughout the qualifying group and yet still didn't make it through. This final match, um, they needed a win against the Dutch, but they sat back and they stifled and they contained throughout. And then the, the, the plan was to launch attacks near the end and try to get that single goal that they needed. And, and it worked. It worked to perfection. They did exactly that. But as you say, the linesman flagged it offside for unfathomable reasons. I mean, you can see this clip on, on YouTube and it's as clear as day. You know, it's not at the perfect angle, admittedly, but it's pretty clear that there was more than one, uh, more than one defender playing him on side. And yes, none of what we're talking about would have happened or 
perhaps should have happened. The the group games, there were there were certain standout things here. Two 0 against Uruguay, the nil of Sweden, uh, the four one against Bulgaria. Uh, they had um, well. They ended up against ten men, didn't they? Against against Uruguay, uh, they didn't use a single sub. Nil nil against Sweden. They made only one change. Uh, Pete Kaiser, uh, Johan's big friend, of course, uh, he was in. For, he was in for <laughs> Rensenbrink. Uh, so that was one sub used in that game. And the four-one, they used the same eleven there, and they did use a couple of subs, Israel and uh, and the Young there. These days, everything is on. Everything is into conservation. Uh, we must take them off. We must. We must uh, wrap them in cotton wool. He's played seventy minutes. He ha- he has to come off, and we save him for the next game. <laughs> they simply played their best 11s, and they would rarely change it unless there was an an issue. And they came through that. Uh, group stage relatively unscathed, although the game against Sweden wasn't the greatest. That wasn't the greatest, and you're absolutely right. It was kind of it was it wasn't a, an evolving lineup as such, was it? It was it was constant, and I guess that once you've reached such a level of deep understanding, maybe that's the best way to keep things um, to to keep things without without making the change that could throw things off, perhaps. And yeah, you're right. That Sweden game wasn't. The most uh, impressive, a goalless draw, but it had the most iconic moment in it, uh, which was the Cruyff turn. Yes, and, and again, this to me encapsulates the whole team um, because it was a moment of beauty, of, of perfection, of play, um, and yet it led to absolutely nothing. So, but do we care about that? Do we remember that? No, no, I don't think we do. We we remember the moment for what it was. We remember the greatness. And it came about through a bit of, uh, of play of people in different positions than you'd expect. Um, a defender bringing the ball out, a midfielder popping up on the wrong side, and Cruyff being in the position that Kaiser or Rensenbrink would normally be in this side. But that's where he was on this day, in this particular moment. He did, he did his turn and he crossed the ball in and, and nothing happened. Um, but that doesn't matter in our mind. It's seared as a moment of, of greatness, a moment to encapsulate this side, and maybe it's it's uh, maybe it's right since they didn't end up winning anything that it that equally this moment didn't lead to anything. The second group phase. You wonder how today coaches and players would would cope with this. You've come through this arduous group stage, playing a lot of games in a very short space of time. And then you have one opponent to worry about. Obviously, you know if you're going to go on and win the tournament, you're going to be playing more games. But immediately, they've qualified from that group. They've then got to worry about Brazil, East Germany, and Argentina. And it must be hard to try and stop your mind racing ahead and to concentrate on the immediate uh, task at hand. But as you said, they beat the Argentinians. Uh, Cruyff had a great game there. And again, I was doing as you were doing, popping back over to YouTube. Uh, there was a 19-year-old guy called uh, Mario Kempes who came on in that game, by the way. Uh, <laughs> so I saw. <laughs> uh, beat East Germany and then Brazil. Um, and the Brazil game was again memorable because they had to win that. Yes, I mean, this ended up as a de facto semi-final, I guess, which isn't what the talk, what the, the the format lent itself to, but it, it with through fortune and circumstance, it, it ended up that way. And yeah, this was Brazil, who were reigning champions, of course, uh, from 1970. All the football arte that they'd produced then, you know, the 
the glorious beauty. And yet this was a totally different, different Brazil. It was more beast than beauty, I guess. Um, and it was the Dutch providing the beauty. Such a contrast of styles. And it ended up as a big physical battle, really, um, which isn't what you'd imagine from from Brazil against the Netherlands in in what amounted to a World Cup semi final, this should this should have been uh, such a such a showcase of, of fabulous football. But actually, uh, it was a bit more brutal than that. It was the blue um, kit as well that Brazil. Oh right? well, yeah, yeah. It just doesn't look right. No. Maybe that's why they don't play so beautifully <laughs> at times. It just doesn't look right to our eyes, does it? No. And and equally, the Dutch had to change, and and it, yeah, it didn't look at all correct and maybe the fact that it wasn't such a beautiful game is uh, encapsulates that too so but up to you know the, the few moments of beauty in it did come from the dutch and that got them through up to that final then they've conceded one goal uh, one every game west germany in the final who we'd seen sensationally beaten by the east and then only just made it through another team that I thought could have potentially been in the book again, which was which was Poland. Tomaszewski yes. and Gorgon and Dana, uh, Kasper Jack, Lato, and of course then the guy that did for England, uh, Jan Damaski. Uh, but Germany's 74 team was considered to be going slightly over the hill after that 72 European Championship yeah. win. Uh, Nets wasn't around, but... Again, if you look at it now, I mean, they may have been saying that then, but if we look at it, Meyer, Vox, Breitner, Beckenbauer, Muller, Hernes, I mean, this isn't a bad team. No, not at all. I think that, that gets a little bit lost if we focus solely on the Dutch, doesn't it? That this was a very, very strong West Germany team. And I think yeah, I totally agree that 72 was their peak. Um, but, you know, by 74... This was a time where Bayern had just about taken over from Ajax as the, the preeminent team in European competition uh, on the club scene. So there was that handing over of the baton, I guess, already. And then the national teams uh, did similar uh, in 1974. The, yeah, the, the, the usual narrative is just to focus solely on the Dutch. And I guess that's what I do largely. But yeah, you do have to acknowledge what a strong side this was, despite that loss to East Germany. And maybe there was a whole load of other connotations around that one that took their eye off the ball a little bit. You're right, the, the game, though, with Poland, again, another de facto semi-final, really, uh, at the end of the group stage. Um, had it not been an absolute torrential downpour in Frankfurt that day, um, and they had to struggle to get the game on, really, sweeping uh, vast swathes of, of water off the pitch, had that weather being different that day uh, and the game would have suited those excellent Polish players that you're talking about maybe we would have been talking about a Poland-Netherlands final um, and then who knows which team would have would have lost out that I would have ended up writing about because <laughs> they both would have been magnificent hey, the, uh, and that would have been quite a spectacle had that come to pass. True, but the, the tabloid press did uh, indeed exist and was still searching for, for lurid uh, headlines and pictures and build at these pictures on the eve of the World Cup final of the Dutch players uh, cavorting around the pool with girls. Uh, Mikkels had actually gone back to Barcelona. I mean, this is this is unbelievable. You can't imagine <laughs> that now. Imagine Southgate popping back to help Wolves out with an FA Cup final on the eve of a World Cup final. But Mikkels <laughs> did return to Barcelona. Questions about who was running the show then when he's away, whether it was the players... 
a lot of strong personalities, as we know there as well. And Beckenbauer and a lot of commentators in the German media uh, felt that there was an arrogance about the Dutch. Yes, and I, I think they were right. I think it's it's something in the Dutch nature as well to have that that arrogance. It was one of the a famous quote. Uh, I can't remember who though, sadly, but they said there's nothing more arrogant than a Dutchman, and that's uh, the only sorry, only one thing more arrogant than a Dutchman is a successful Dutchman. <laughs> and this team, this team was full of them. <laughs> uh, with well, I mean, you could never accuse Cruyff of being uh, anything other than arrogant in his outlook. You know, he he was an idealist. He was a footballing uh, purist, but he also he had that arrogant side as well. Um, yes, I, I think their eye did come off the ball. I think. I don't know whether they actually thought that that it was a done deal that they would just win. I don't know, but that, their eyes did seem to come off the ball in the preparation for this. They, yes, all those build stories um, that that came out. Well, you know, I've seen some reports that would suggest that actually what came out was was um, was the minimum <laughs> of what was actually going on. Um, I guess we'll never fully know on that score, but it, it's certainly not ideal preparation <laughs> at all. Um, against, obviously, yes, a, a team who were more than capable of, of, of beating them uh, in the normal course of events, really, as well. So, again, you know, we, we know what happens in the in the final. But I, I want to have a, a quick word on the Dutch 78 uh, team as well with uh, Ernst Tappel, uh, the Austrian. And he was the guy, of course, who had taken Feyenoord uh, mm. to the European Cup final. Not quite the same impact as, as 74, but this squad still had uh, Ruud Kroll, Janssen Hahn, the Van der Kirchhoff uh, brothers, uh, Rensenbrink was there, Neskins was there, Rep and Serbia. So, I mean, this this was still a very good team, but, of course, there was no Johan Cruyff. Cruyff did play the qualifiers. When you mention that to people now, they forget that, that he he didn't actually walk away from the national team. He'd said years before that he wasn't prepared to do that two months away, especially in South America. And then later on, it got linked to he didn't um, want to go over there due to the the political situation. Well, that's what people thought at the time. Um, years later, though, it, he he did reveal in in his books that it was actually to do with his family being kidnapped that's right, in Barcelona. Yeah. And he didn't want to leave them, which is much more understandable. And that, as, as you say, he he had said well in advance that he wasn't going to go, but that was that reason wasn't out. So that led, of course, to the, the speculation you're you're talking about there. And there were huge campaigns in the Netherlands to get him to change his mind, and to get him to get him to come to uh, to Argentina with the team. But you know, he wasn't for changing. And given what we then much uh, much later discovered was the real reason. That's that's obviously understandable. Had it been a political stance um then maybe his his mind could have been turned um they were also without van hannigan as well for that was money wasn't it exactly which very (laughs) dutch (laughs) uh, very dutch exactly i know the the strong-willed refusal to back down to cut your nose off to spite your face in the end uh that, that seemed to be the case with him but that's a that's another huge blow to a squad Given how well he had played in 1974 as well, how key he was to uh, to to their success. Yeah, we tuned um, in because, of course, you know, you you grow if you were growing up in the 70s, 
and you get to this this World Cup, and you, you know, I, I remember having to beg <laughs> to be allowed to stay up to what, or you'd, you'd be coming down the stairs to peer through the crack in the door, you know, because there was no no internet, no nothing. If you missed the game, you didn't see the game. It was as, yeah. it was as simple as that. <laughs> but the Dutch, I think. You know, we, we we remembered, and we were we were doing the, the the Panini albums, and you're collecting the players, and you just thought, oh, this is going to be a World Cup final again, you know. But outside of the game against Iran, they struggled in that group stage, a draw and then a defeat to Ali McLeod's Tartan Army. Yes, yeah, they they very much struggled from the off. I think maybe the the disruption they'd had. Um, the whole Cruyff campaign and then the Van Hannigan situation, maybe that caused a little bit of um, a misstep at the start, caused them a little bit of time to get going, uh, or maybe a lack of comfort in their surroundings, you know, locked away in the middle of nowhere in Argentina. is uh, can't have been particularly easy either. Um, but yeah, for whatever reason, yes, they did start really, really poorly and just scraped through the first round group. Had Scotland managed uh, a slightly bigger victory in that last day, it would have been they going through instead of the Dutch. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to, to end up doing what they did and so nearly winning is, it's from a base where they, they struggled. But they wouldn't be the first team to have struggled early on in a World Cup and then gone Absolutely. Uh, and done well. I mean, just four years later, Italy were, well, they did it successfully, but, you know, it was very, very similar in the first stage of, of, of uh, big struggles to get through. Rensenbrink. Um, I was going to mention oh, him. Dear. I mean, yes. <laughs> what, what what a tournament he had. Andalek's greatest ever uh, foreign player. Of course, many of the changes as well that you, you could see as the game began to evolve were in where the players were playing. Seven of that 22 in the Dutch squad were playing outside of uh, Netherlands. Rensenbrink, one of the, the greatest ever. That goal against the Scots, by the way, people might have forgotten that. It was the 1,000th goal in World Cup history, uh, but he had he had some impact on that team. Absolutely, and I think he was the key beneficiary of Cruyff not being there. Um, it freed him up a little bit. You know, he he obviously played alongside Cruyff in '74 and, and had done many times for the national team um, and excellently as well. But I think he was slightly freed to have a more key role given Cruyff wasn't there. Maybe he, he had to step up a little bit, I guess. And he was a fine player and he was capable of doing that. And as this World Cup went along, he, I think, grew in stature and grew into the role even more uh, and became significantly prominent, obviously. And, you know, well, we'll get on to what, what happened in the final for him as well. But, you know, he, he, was, he was their main guy in Cruyff's absence. And I think had Cruyff been there, Rensenbrink would have been a little more to the outside of things yeah. and uh yeah i mean he, he relished that role and and it nearly it nearly took him to the to the very pinnacle let's, let's not uh, labor too much on an argentina's six nil win over peru <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but the the antics in that final yeah keeping the the dutch on the field for for 10 minutes can you again it simply wouldn't happen today can you imagine a team being met that you turn around and you walk off wouldn't you um, and hope oh. you got awarded it by default. But Rensenbrink, <laughs> with that, uh, with that moment in what was it, the 80, 88th minute, 
when the ball rolls off of the post and along the line. He is literally, he, he is millimeters, centimeters away from well, immortality. He is, I know. It is just so heartbreakingly painful to come so close. As he himself has said, sometimes I wish I'd missed altogether and then people wouldn't ask me about it. Uh, I think it, it makes it far worse uh, or, or better for a narrative that I'm talking about, I guess, that, that it was so close, but from their perspective, far worse, because you can't help but wonder what if. But equally, many people would say, well, what if it had gone in? What would have happened then? Um, oh. Would the game have carried on and on until Argentina were able to get a dodgy penalty at the <laughs> other end or something like that? You know, the, as you allude to with the Argentina-Peru situation, there were other things going on in this World Cup. And... You know, Argentina needed to win, uh, so maybe maybe something would have happened. We will never know, of course. This is pure speculation, maybe utterly wrongly. Uh, but you, you can't help but speculate what might have happened had that ball rolled the other side of the post and gone in. Now, we will return to this book and the conversation with Aidan a little bit later on when we're going to be looking at Denmark in 1986. Yes, Mort Molson, Michael Laudrup, etc. Now, though, it is time to whisk you back to 1982 and the glorious failure of Brazil. Did it get any more glorious a failure than this? The most talented Brazilian team of a generation and they didn't even make the World Cup final. Stuart Horsfield's book goes into real detail about how they actually arrived at that team of 1982. The story actually begins back in the late 1960s. Uh, now, there is a much longer and unedited version of this conversation. You can find it on the website, uh, talkingsportsbooks.com, or via any of the streaming platforms. So, here we go then. Brazil, the 1982 Glorious failure. Now, Santana wanted to create a side that represented Brazil as a nation, its people, and its philosophy. And some of the players, we obviously can't go through all of them, but those that perhaps bring back the most vivid memories. Uh, Socrates, the doctor's team it was, a political activist, a philosopher, a qualified doctor who loved nothing more than... Uh, 20 cigarettes and uh, a lot of drink and uh, had an eye for the ladies as well. And uh, Falcao as well, only one of two players who actually played outside of Brazil. He was with uh, Roma, uh, the white Pelé, Zico, of course, number 375 <laughs> in the Panini book. Um, the Fantasista, the number 10. And of course, uh, Adair, who doesn't perhaps get as many mentions as uh, he should do. And, of course, Teddy Santana, the man that was pretty all, all together. Even then, OK, when we get to the first game, we weren't sure what patterns they were going to weave on that global footballing stage. I don't even think they did. To be, if, I think if, you know, I'm not actually sure they, they knew. They knew how they wanted to play. Um, you know, they knew the sort of, and it's it's difficult because so much of it is spontaneous, and yet so much of it was was drilled into them. You know, in training, you know, you know, Zico. You know, there's a great quote that you know Santana would 
you know, practice, 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 practice. You know, and you know, if you made nine out of ten, will it be free kicks, passes? You know, and and Santana would be yeah, but you, you missed one or you misplaced a pass or you lost possession. You know, you always concentrated on on the not so much the negative, but the the one that didn't go right. You know, he was such a perfectionist, and so. And, and Falcao's another one who talks about training was just passing, passing, passing the ball, passing, passing, passing. And it, it was, yes, it was spontaneous, but it was, it was all they'd known. It was all they'd done. It was, you know, they'd worked on it for the best part of two years, just this constant movement and recycling of the ball. But it was, I guess it was the way they did it that, that set them apart. Um, you know, it was how they moved the ball. It was the way they passed the ball. It was which part of the foot they would use to to pass the ball um, and it was it was almost in, instinctive but it but it actually came from this intense training this intense um repetition of of pat not so much patterns but repetition of of pass and move repetition of making the ball easy for the receiver so they could get the pass away quickly in one and two touches and it you know it was you know people look at guardiola Guardiola's side now, and certainly that Barca side that he had, and it, it it's a you know it's an early version of that. It's it's not as close, and it's not as tight, and it's not as quick, but it's it's that it's played over longer distances. They played the ball over ten and fifteen yard passes, but they were still one and two touch passes. They were just played over a a, a sort of a larger area as opposed to the sort of the very tight controlled pass and move tiki taka football that Guardiola sort of preaches. It was it was an elongated, whatever that might be called, it was an elongated version of that. And so when they, you know, when they pitch up in Russia, they've, you know, they have the European tour in 81, where there's, you know, the signs that they are actually a very, very good side. They beat England, they beat France, they beat West Germany in nine days. Um, so, you know, people are aware of what's coming. They're aware of how good they are. And, you know, they're installed as favourites. For the tournament and you know they have this first game against the soviet union and and for the first sort of 15 20 minutes it's it it is as expected a lot of brazilian possession it's very casual it's very relaxed it's very instinctive um and there are sort of not say there are gaps at the back but there's already this element down the right hand side that does prove to be a problem throughout the tournament um, sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it really, really wrong. And this was one of the games where it, it's never really dealt with properly. Um, and there's, you know, they go they go one nil down and it's and all of a sudden it looks like that it looks like the wheels have fallen off really before it's even got started. But I suppose that the the, the, the Soviet Union game is probably the, the greatest testimony to Santana's philosophy, even more so than the Italian game, in that there's no panic, even though they're 1-0 down, even though it goes deep into the second half and they're still 1-0 down. There is no change in a philosophy. There is no, let, you know, let's revert to a, a plan B, let's revert to a more direct football. It is still, it's still the same from minute one to minute 90, that the way they played, the way Santana wanted them to play, the way the players had been drilled and practiced to play it and the way the players wanted to play, which was also just as important. You know, he'd select players who wanted to play like this. And they they still kept to that philosophy despite going into that first round group game one nil down after 75 minutes, one all with only three minutes to go when they are the expected favourites. They still never changed 
Santana's philosophy. And I think that is probably the game that really, if you, if you look at what Santana was about and what his team were about, that that's the get for me. That's the game, and certainly the two goals that they score, you know, that encapsulates what he was about um, perfectly in that sort of final quarter of an hour of that opening game against the Soviet Union. That, that goal, by the way, Adair's goal, one of the greatest goals that Brazil ever produced at a, at a World Cup Finals, I think. And if you look, I did find a list of FIFA's 100 greatest Brazilian goals. This one was at number seven. Uh, the dummy by Falcao, the finish by Adair was uh, quite, uh, quite stunning. But next, it was the Scots. Um, and this was, this was, of course, at a time when the Scots had a fabulous squad full of um, very experienced players of winning trophies, European Cups, UEFA Cups, titles, you name it. Uh, they'd won it. Jockstein and Hansen Sooners, Strachan, uh, Dalglish, uh, Steve Archibald in there as well. But in the end, as uh, Willie Miller said, despite that great goal by Kevin Nery, we were overwhelmed by their quality. It, yeah, it, I was lucky. I, I got to speak to Willie Miller. And he was great. He was he was a great guy to speak to, because um, I wanted to speak to as many people as I could who had either faced this side, shared a pitch with this side, been involved with this side anyway. Um, you know, I, you know, I spent quite a bit of time chatting with him. Um, but yeah, as the Scotland side, like you know, like you mentioned there, it, I, I think it's if memory serves me correct. I think it's seventeen out of the twenty two either had played or would play in major European club finals, mm. it, it was an incredible, I, I knew they were a good side, but I didn't realize quite how good and how the strength in depth that they had. You know, John Robertson was a player there as well, you know, from Forest and, you know, under Brian Clough, he was playing for them. It, they had quality everywhere, everywhere. And, and the other thing was at the time, which we forget, I mean, they don't, they'd not played them too often, of course, but uh, Scotland had never conceded uh, more than two against Brazil in their history of meetings. So there was no real, there was no incredible fear that they were going to get battered. No, no, and obviously in, in 74, you know, they draw nil-nil, you know, in, in 74. And so there was, you know, Brazil were the favourites and, you know, they'd sort of squeaked past the Soviet Union um, uh, Scotland had played New Zealand first, who were always going to be the, the whipping boys, for want of a better word, of that group. So Scotland had kind of gone into the game relatively confident. It was a 5-2 against New Zealand, although it got a bit hairy at times. But it's, it's a comfortable victory. That, that game is done and out of the way. And Jock Steen calls you know, the Brazil game almost a free hit. They don't, they don't kind of expect to win, but they certainly they expect to be able to hold their own. And like you say, Nery's goal that opens the game is, you know, really belongs in the, in that Brazil side's sort of catalogue of goals from the tournament. It, you know, it's a, it's a stunning goal that Neri scores. And again, for the second game in a row, they go 1-0 down. And this time it's, you know, it's a, like you say, a very, very good Scotland side that they go 1-0 down to. And, and Scotland do play well in that opening sort of 20, 25 minutes. It's, it's very British, it's very intense. You know, there's a lot of pressing. They don't really let Brazil settle as such. There's not, you know, there's not any many clear cut chances. But then once the floodgates opened, you know, they truly opened. And, and you know, Willie Miller was saying, first of all, of the heat, you know, it's, it's, it's the hottest I've, I've ever played a game of football in, in that 
you know that evening that evening um summer evening in in seville you know he said it, it was so hot you know so that's one thing i can remember he said but once they got once they went two one up at the start of the second half he said we were we were literally just holding on literally holding on he said they just he said you just couldn't you couldn't cope with them and we, we you know we there was no real team talk at half time although it's one all it, it was all about containment even at half time it was about containment can we hold them can we contain them and then once they get the second goal you know he said they just you know like I said it did just overwhelmed us it was just this constant wave and he was very when I spoke to him because one of the questions that I asked you know the people that I spoke to was you know which players stood out for you obviously I had my opinion as a 10 year old but you know he was so you know Socrates for him was was the player you know he said he was he was head and shoulders you know Adair scores a great another great goal Zico scores um the free kick he said but Socrates was he said he was incredible he was an app you know he was an incredible footballer and he was for him, head and shoulders above everybody else. I did like uh, Sunes's other quote there at the start of the game. He said, the lineup, he said, I looked along our line, he said, and we were sweating all over the place. He said, the Brazilians didn't have a bead of sweat on them. He said, they were just standing there, gently swaying their hips to the sound of the samba beats and looking at the girls in the crowd. He said, I just thought we were in big trouble here. Uh, but they went on New Zealand. Um, I mean, New Zealand was just a, a walkover. And then into the uh, game against Argentina, uh, which is always one with a sense of occasion because you're talking here about a team that was the defending uh, world champion or the defending world champions. Again, I mean, the heat was unbelievable. These nights, I remember this, it was 96 to 98 degrees in the stadium and you've got that picture of Minotti down there chain smoking his way through the uh, through the game uh, we have Maradona interesting uh, piece from the previous game because they'd already been beaten of course by Italy Maradona fouled 23 times in that game against Italy by the legendary Claudio not so gentile <laughs> it's um it's it's a uh... I mean, it, it's a great, you know, it's part of the story that makes up this, this side, you know, this team and, the, and this book. But it's the, this second round. I'm not sure I understand it. In, in the book, I, I write it out word for word as FIFA describes the the sort of progression to the second mm. round. And, and Brazil end up with the defending champions. They are the favourites and the eventual winners. So they're, they're the three that sit in this group now. Looking back, what allegedly, well, not allegedly, but what essentially was happened was Brazil were actually drawn to play two group runners up. So in Argentina's group, Belgium actually win the group and Argentina end up being runners up, which is why they end up in Brazil's group. In Italy's group, Poland win the group. Again, Italy, the runners up. And so Italy drop into Brazil's group. Now, I still don't understand how that was worked out. Some teams had two first round group winners and one runner up. Some groups had one winner and two runners up. And, and so essentially Brazil are playing two runners up in their, in their second round group. Just all things being equal, you would have expected it to have been Brazil, Poland and Belgium, but it ends up being Brazil, Argentina and, and Italy. And like you say, the subplots, you know, Argentina, I think they have seven, 
starters who played in the World Cup final in 78, and they've added to that Diego Maradona. Italy are horrific in the opening group. They, they draw the three opening group games, they score two goals. Cameroon draw their three opening games, but only score one goal. So Cameroon go home unbeaten, and Italy progress by virtue of one goal. But like you say, you have sort of the, the menacing figure that is Claudio Gentile. And he, you know, his treatment of Maradona is, is horrific. And, you know, the stuff we've seen, you know, since, since the passing of him, you know, we've seen a lot of clips of Maradona and the, the, the way the game was played when he played, you know, you, you wonder how he, how he survived and what referees deemed as acceptable in 82 to what's acceptable now is, it's almost a different game. Um, but in that in that day and age, Maradona, you know, it is it is absolute borderline brutality and assault that is inflicted on him. But like I said, predominantly by by Gentile. Uh, but these are all the characters. These are all the the sort of the subplots, like you say, that go on to make this story. You know, it's not just a, a story about a team who were really really good. I rewatched the whole Italy Argentina game, and it, it's relentless. It is absolutely relentless the treatment of him. Um, by the Italians and you know they win 2-1 which means that Argentina have to win like you say you know it's the two biggest rivals in South American football Brazil are about to play their first game in that group Argentina have already lost so they have to win if they've got any chance of progressing out of this second round group. Uh, in the end the game against uh, Argentina is something of a not quite a one-sided affair, but it was just won relatively easily. Zika Serginho and Junior with that late goal by uh, Diaz and Argentina were out the way. And there wasn't anybody, I don't think, who prior to the game against Italy, and this includes the Italian players that were playing in it, uh, thought that anything else was going to happen apart from Brazil were just going to comfortably slip into a World Cup final. It, it, it was, and it... For me, for me, the Argentina game is is by far the best performance. It, it's the most complete performance. There's a, there's always a lot of not not myth, but sort of this. Oh, this is the team that couldn't defend. You know, this is the team that didn't have a number nine. This is the team that had a dodgy goalkeeper. And they're the sort of they're the sort of stories that are usually tagged or the headlines that are tagged with this side. But when you watch the Argentina game. And, and you you know and you watch it really really closely. It, it's it's a borderline complete performance. They, they defend incredibly well. They press really high up the pitch. You know it's, it's a very twentieth century sort of performance. The full backs go forward. The two centre halves go wide to cover the full backs. You know if they get caught in possession, Socrates and Falcao drop back and play as two centre halves. It, it is an incredible, it is a, an incredible complete performance. Um, Wilde Perez makes great saves at nil nil and one nil um, to Brazil. You know, it it sort of dispels the the myth that comes from that it's a team that can't defend. Obviously, we know what happens against Italy, but but that Argentina game that that's kind of the game where right, okay, defending champions have have been beaten, they're out. Italy have scraped through the group. You know, they've struggled to score goals. Paolo Rossi still hasn't scored yet. And like you say, it's, a, it, it, it's as, as a foregone conclusion as you can probably get. You have two completely opposing footballing philosophies. You know, Brazil have already shown that even if they go a goal down, they'll come back. You know, they, they can score goals from anywhere. You know, they're scoring, they're averaging sort of three goals a game. It, it just, 
it just didn't look like there could be any other result. You look at this and you look at now and you think, well, maybe there was a bit of psychology on, on display here from the Italians. They read the situation perfectly. You had Rossi saying, you know, this Brazilian team, they're not from this planet. Um, you know, they could play blindfolded and they'd know where each other uh, was on the field of play. Bruno Conte said, listen, we'd already had our bags packed ready to go home immediately after the game. Uh, Rossi looked like nothing. He looked um, basically a shadow of his former self, but it wasn't really surprising because he'd only recently come back from the ban. And so, you know, he was far from Matt Sharp. Bezot had picked up a lot of criticism for actually taking him to the, to the final. So could Brazil have gone into that game thinking, yeah, we've got this 1-1? I, I think there is an element of that. I mean, there's some, you know, Falcao talks about, because um, obviously, you know, you say he played for Roma and Bruno Conti uh, was a teammate at Roma. And Bruno Conti has a great tournament and gets better and better. In fact, he's probably their best player leading up to the Brazil game. Sort of one of their shining lights. And, you know, and he goes on to have a great tournament, Bruno Conti. And, and Falcao, you know, you know, he's talking to the players and he's saying to the players, you know, we need to be careful. The Italians are a good side. They're always going to be difficult to beat. Don't, don't assume that this is going to be a, a foregone conclusion. Don't assume that they're going to be, you know, that they will be poor against us. They are always organised. They're always difficult to beat. And obviously with his time in, in Serie A, leading up to the 82 tournament, you know, he, he knows this Italian side really, really well. And he knows the players in it. He knows the personnel in it. Paolo Rossi, as you mentioned, is probably the exception, having not played for two years in the lead-up to the tournament. But everybody else, you know, he knows about the, the Italian back four and goalkeeper. You know, four out of the five of them play for Juventus week in, week out. You know, there is only one other um, defender who doesn't play for Juventus in that starting back four plus goalkeeper. So they were always going to be incredibly difficult to beat. I, I just think that the, because of what they've done to Argentina, Tina were the, were the side that were going to get in the way of winning this tournament. I don't think they saw Italy as being that side. I think they thought Argentina would be the side that would prevent them from winning the World Cup if anybody was going to do it. And, you know, it's not. Do you know, if you look back now, as we have a, a habit of doing, of course, hindsight a great thing, and you look at that Italian World Cup squad on paper, you think, well, you know, player for player, this is a 50-50 game. You look at it, Dino Zoff, who was on the bench in 1970. You had uh, Baresi in the squad, Bergami in the squad, Cabrini, Gentile, Shirea, Viekovod, uh, Marco Tardelli, Franco Causio, Bruno Conti. There was a very, very young Daniele Mazzaro who uh, scored the uh, goals in the, in the 94 European Cup final, uh, the uh, Cruyff-Capello game. Uh, they had Graziani, they had, I mean, Rossi, even, Rossi doesn't look like the biggest star in that squad, but as a collective of those names that uh, you just read out there, you, you would always have thought there was going to be a big problem for Brazil to score a lot of goals. And, and, that, and that's exactly, you know, that is exactly it. Brazil, Brazil would struggle to score, like you say, one of, probably one of the greatest, well, they are probably the greatest nation in terms of pragmatism and being able to defend a 1-0 lead, if you like. Um, and, and I think Brazil, it, it never quite clicks. It, it just doesn't quite, it's almost like the pitch is slightly blurred or slightly pixelated was how I kind of described it. Against Argentina, it was, 
The performance was crystal clear, it was HD, everything worked, everything was in sync, everything was perfect. The Italy game, it's all just off, it's all ever so slightly out of focus, it's ever so slightly blurred, the passes don't quite reach, the, the intensity is never quite matched. And a lot of that has to go to, you know, the Italians, like you say, I mean, um, Scherer is a, a wonderful, wonderful football, incredible footballer, incredible, uh, incredible libero, but people tend to remember Gentile for it, for the brutality, but, but but the brutality that he had, uh, sort of, Scherer was almost allowed to play, almost like Franz Beckenbauer would play for, for West Germany, you know, an incredible footballer, Bruno Conti, great footballer, you know, it had, it had names, you know, right through the side that, you know, it, it was, I think the problem was, was how poor they'd been in the group. That was the problem. Had they have played to their potential from the start of the tournament, it maybe wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been quite so much complacency on behalf of the Brazilians. But because they'd been, they'd been poor against Peru, poor against Cameroon, poor against Poland, it was like they just never got going. But once they did get going, like you say, the, they had the personnel in there to, well, eventually to go on and to go on and win the tournament itself. That's how good they actually were. That was probably part of their strength in this game. This siege mentality of it is just us. You know, never mind the fans, never mind the press, never mind the people back home. It's just the manager, his squad, and that's it. And they're in it together. And it almost gave them a, you know, a strength beyond maybe what they would have had. Like you say, a, you know, it's nil-nil, it's one-all, it's two-all. You know, three times Brazil could go through, three times the Italians could get knocked out, but they still have enough resilience to to see the game out and get that third goal. And, and like you say, a lot of that probably comes from this, this sort of attitude that had been created by Bearsop, that ultimately had been created by the press fortuitously. You know, the players had sort of almost bought into the, well, it's just us boys and, you know, we'll, we'll win it by ourselves. We don't need the press. We don't need the people back home. We'll just win it ourselves. And I, and I think that did give them that added, um, resilience to, to like I say to go on and, and certainly to go on and beat the Brazilians obviously once that happens everything changes how to win a world cup by Chris Evans looks in intricate detail at everything a coach and team would need in order to lift the World Cup. The book actually has contributions from the likes of Phil Scolari, Roberto Martinez and Otmar Hitzfeld. That's just to name a few. Now, there is a longer, more detailed version of this conversation on the website at www.talkingsportsbooks.com or via any of the main streaming providers. So, how do you go about winning a World Cup? Winning the World Cup, and I, I mean, I am adding a sense of irony in here. How difficult can it be? There you are with your uh, the pick of the nation's best players. You get together, everybody knows each other. All the players, of course, no expense spared. Uh, you're off to a five-star mega complex. You play seven or eight games, and then you win the World Cup. You're immortalised. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? What manager wouldn't want a slice of that? I think a lot of managers look at it and they, they fancy an idea. They fa they fancy having a go um, at trying to win the World Cup because, like you say, it, it looks as though it's seven games to 
to become immortalized but actually the reality is that it's a lot harder than it looks and not least because of the environment and having to live together for for over a month but actually the pressure and there's there's nothing quite like it and and it's actually getting all of those things together at the right time and, and peaking at the right moment and I think Olympic athletes talk about this yeah um every four years that they want to, to make sure they're ready for the Olympic Games. And I think it's exactly the same with, with football teams as well. Um, and actually knowing how to, to make sure everything is right um, and there aren't any issues that can go from being something small, as it might be in the club games, to being something that explodes and becomes a global story at a World Cup. Um, and actually there is a, a thread that kind of goes through all of this, that it's about dealing with adversity um, and when those moments come around, that that's when you've got to get it right. 350 managers have uh, taken part in the World Cup and only 20 have won it. One of the things that did sh- uh, surprise me at the beginning of the book is how shocked managers feel when they arrive on the international stage. Roberto Martinez uh, was said, I had to change my mindset. At club level, 60 sessions pre-season, then your first game. With the international team, I get three days. You know, I had to adapt. I couldn't work in the same manner. Why was he surprised about that? I mean, it would seem patently obvious to everybody that you know you're never going to be able to run a national team the same way that you run a club team. I mean, I think I get the impression that a lot of it is guided by that that external pressure. Um, and I think the way that the club game is now, it's so choreographed and, and so well rehearsed with the likes of Guardiola and Klopp. Um, and every cycle of play is, is kind of managed in that way. And I think therefore managers that have been so used to the club game think that they could do something at the international, you know, international arena as well. But I don't think it's quite like that. I think that the, the reality is that, that they realise they think they can get over this message succinctly, but it's not going to happen like that. And they've got to make sure that they're really kind of working efficiently and working around it. And I think Martinez, I got the impression, kind of had a few preconceptions of what it might be like and realised the time that he'd got. Um, but even so, like the three days just kind of whipped by. And, and maybe it is, this is why you get international specialists now who, who manage in that, that area, because you, as a club manager, you get so stuck into that one area and knowing this is how you work actually coming away from it and trying to do it in an international area is, is, is difficult and it's not for everyone because I think Antonio Conte, for example, when he was at Italy, he, he'd realised very quickly that it, that it wasn't for him and he struggled to adapt, whereas I think Martinez did. I think he'd gone in with those impressions but then was able to kind of mould his style to make sure he was he was ready and, and he too could be an international specialist. Uh, big Phil Scolari goes deeper with his particular brand of international management. Tactics need to be very well defined to the entire squad. And he went on to add, observe, collect data and create a plan that all the players from around the world can adapt to, create a special bond within the squad. And again, you know, it it sounds simple and you think, well, actually, yeah, this is another thing you've got to think of, creating a plan that all of the players in particular with the Brazilians, because they are coming from pretty much the four corners of the world. And I think this is it. I mean, I think we, again, we see in our area with particularly like England, that a lot of the players are domestically based. 
and they kind of live in the same environment and the same trends of working in the Premier League where they're all predominantly playing. But yeah, you're right. With a lot of other nations, it's a completely different challenge because they could be working with different styles, different levels of pressure, and it's moulding that all together um, and making sure that you're getting a message across. And I think it is that there's a lot of simplicity behind what needs to be done. And I think simplicity is exactly the word because of the time that international managers don't have with their squads. Um, and that's the impression that I got. And I, I think it's making sure that you're you're getting it right. And this is where I'm saying about Mourinho um, and, and Guardiola maybe not working if they came to be international managers because they're not having to work in that environment. They're getting the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. These players are always there. And it's just not something. And I think it's... It, this, this is where I think the book kind of delves into that a little bit more and, and perhaps... Is, is eye-opening in a, in a sort of way that once you read it, you think, yeah, I'd not really considered it like that. And that, that's certainly how I felt as I went through talking to people. Some players were shocked at just what it was like to team up, team up with a coach who had a great reputation as a club manager but moved into the international field. Jamie Carragher talking about wanting desperately to, to be part of the England setup when Fabio Capello came on board after, of course, he built his reputation with that all-conquering Milan team in the, in the 1990s, working with some of the greatest ever players, Baresi and Maldini. Uh, but at that 2010 World Cup, he described Capello as, or he described him as being, well, underwhelmed by Capello thought he would be more hands-on yeah and I think maybe this is the point again in terms of a club manager adapting to international management because I think there was a lot of noise at that time when Capello took over England about him banning ketchup and being too strict especially based on what the the, the players had experienced with Sven um, now I just feel that perhaps Capello this might have worked at that time and as a club manager over a certain amount of time that that could have worked. But I actually think that one of the big issues probably was that because he, he then went on and he didn't didn't really produce anything great when he was Russia manager either. And you kind of look at it and think, well, was it a case of his age and things had kind of, you know, just tailed off and he wasn't as as, as on it as he was um, with Milan? Or was it just that his approach didn't work in international level? Um, you know, Bobby Robson realised that he had to be softer on his players when he became England manager compared to what he had been um, at Ipswich. And Terry Butcher talks about there was almost a different Bobby Robson. And I think maybe that was the same with Capello. And it's a shame that we don't have somebody who kind of experienced Capello as a club manager versus an international manager and say, how how did it change? And I wonder whether it was probably relatively similar. And that was part of the feeling that Carragher got, that he talks about how well drilled that Milan defence was and he wanted to be part of that and working with Capello on the training pitch. But even at a tournament, there just wasn't that time to get that feeling. So it, it's probably a few of these things marrying together. And I think, again, it, it just builds this idea of an international manager who needs to be a specialist within this arena and can't just be how much it correlates between successful in the club game and being successful in the international game. Carlos Alberto Pereira was never a player of any repute and he just came out and says look the players respected me I didn't need to teach Bebeto or Romario how to kick a ball my job was to organise which seems something of a simplification, really, because he organised very well indeed. 
Yeah, and actually, if you look at the, you know, when the 94 World Cup, and actually there was a, a bit of criticism for Brazil because mm. they were probably a little bit too rigid for some people's liking. Dunga but, used to get loads of criticism, I remember, in that yeah. World Cup. Yeah, well, I mean, this is it. They didn't really go, and it wasn't like a, a classic Brazilian team that went in. Um, you know, knock the socks off everyone else. It was kind of like they had this bit of quality, but it was based on that foundation. And and it's again, it's one of those themes that kind of comes across um, and you, you hear about now is that everyone talks about um, pragmatism. And actually, again, we see in our, in our area that Gareth Southgate get, gets criticised for being too pragmatic. But if you look back at all the really successful international sides, they're all pragmatic first. You know, Argentina with Maradona, that was one of the most pragmatic sides there were. Um, and I think Pereira is a, a a student of the game. He'd kind of been around... He was even part of, of Mario Zagallo's, um, you know, coaching staff when, when they won um, the World Cup. European coaches that go to other continents... This, again, very, very interesting. Uh, Europeans that go to Africa, there are many of them. Uh, most of them German, it has to be said. Different dynamics to, to deal with and to sort of, you know, temper the expectation of these rabid, football-loving nations. Otto Pfister. Uh, he, went, he got Saudi to the World Cup, then lost one game to Brazil and gets a knock on the door. Prince Faisal saying, I'm not, I'm not happy. And after the uh, after coming in to put in his initial squad for that World Cup, he was told, "There's a player on here. I want change." And so Fister just turned around and thought, "No, I can't deal with this. I'm walking out." You need to bring a strong mentality. That was his quote to Africa. And if you do a, a little more digging on him, uh, Fister Fister was loved actually. He coached nine African nations. I forget which one it was who always used to use a quote called, he rules with an iron fister. I mean, I think he he was loved quite a lot of places that he went. And again, he's another one of these, these specialists that he found his groove was as an international manager. But I think, again, he wouldn't have um, managed to, you know, have nine nine nations on his CV and actually kept on being hired and kept on wanting to be hired if he didn't, kind of grasp it um but he was quite fascinating you do find that there's these these guys philip philip truzier is another one who's kind of had a lot of different jobs and he'd he'd been japan manager um, um after Pereira lost the job two two games into the, the 98 world cup and, um, kind of before the the 2002 world cup and you find quite a few of these guys when you start talking to them they've all had either these experiences where they've been sacked after something has happened to them after you know an issue has occurred and they found they've lost their job or have in inherited a job because that's happened to somebody else. And there's this whole sort of adaptability and understanding what's around you. And again, I think it's not for everyone. And, and Fister, um, you know, he, he looked as though he was never actually going to get to a World Cup. That, that Saudi um, experience looked as though it was going to be his thing and it kind of dropped off. And again, you see the threads pass through that I think then Carlos Alberto Pereira took over. Um, for that and then Fister was offered the job back again he, it, then Fister gets, finally gets his chance to go with Togo after another manager had got them you know, qualified um, and then he almost didn't get there anyway because there, there was then a, a problem about bonuses being paid so I think it's 
when you're going to manage in different continents and with different sizes of nations, I think actually the challenge is completely different. Um, and we've spoken about actually, you know, Pereira had spoken about when he was at Brazil that he didn't need to coach these players to, to be better players. But then you've got some further down the level. Um, Stephen Constantine's another one who's managed at India, Nepal and, and quite a few smaller nations. And actually his job um, has been almost to bring that coaching mentality into what he does with those players because he's a superior coach to where they're what they're used to dealing with at club level. Uh, threats and outside influences sometimes you literally are or the coach is literally putting their life on the line we heard about Peter Butler who had a brush with extremist uh, Botswana uh, Stephen Constantine, we talked about earlier, being rescued in the desert as the Sudan coach after straying into kidnapped territory. Uh, Michel Hidalgo in 78, en route to the airport in France, uh, his car being stopped by armed men. I mean, how the fear he must have felt when he's told to get out of the car and walk into the forest. I mean, there's only one thing going through your mind there. He actually managed to get away. The Columbia coach, this was a well-known story as well. In 94, uh, Maturana was told to drop Gabriel Gomez after threats from the drug cartels that blow up his house. And plus, we had Escobar losing his life. Um, it's not for the faint-hearted. And it means so much. And I think this is this is where it comes back down to being prepared for a World Cup because... Whether you're trying to qualify, whether you've just qualified and, you know, the nation just wants to have a good showing, regardless of that, there is always pressure at every stage. Um, and I think pressure will bring naturally sort of political issues might might be behind it. There might be kind of social things as, as probably with, with Maturana and Colombia it was. So you need to be prepared to take this and actually... Even more so in, in recent years, international managers become that focal point of their nation's FA. They become the spokesperson. People ask um, managers for their opinions on things. And it's not necessarily their role. They're there for the football, but they become that that focal point. I think as, as a focal point, then you then become... Um, I guess a target. You get crosshairs put on your back because you are held up as a... you know bastion of everything that's brilliant when things go well but it goes the other way and, and it can soon become a bit of a nightmare for people too that was all to do wasn't it with the french government supplying argentina with weapons yes yeah so i mean obviously there's a lot a lot around that that world cup and you know players going and actually there's a, a piece in there about um Ernie Brandt talks about what it was like for being out with the Netherlands at that time and, and how much they knew and how much their management let them know. But yeah, um, Hidalgo, after he'd gone through that, understandably said that he wasn't going to, um, he, he wasn't going to go to to Argentina. He wasn't going to go to the World Cup um, after he'd been through that. But actually, very quickly he he changed his mind. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's the, all these things are happening that Hidalgo's got nothing to do with these weapons being sent but he he becomes that focus because he is the french manager and he is the the senior figure he's almost kind of like the the president or the prime minister as, as that he represents and he's the one that that everyone kind of goes for almost and it's yeah there, there's a lot of 
external things that perhaps you know club management you don't get i know that the, the big clubs have an awful lot of pressure and 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 they have that but it's even that isn't quite the same as having an entire nation kind of hanging on your every uh, we have to think about the players as well making the selection uh, the best tale in this book surrounds valerie neponyashchi who was like some grim reaper shuffled down the corridor late at night. I mean, you can just picture the scene. It's it's 11 o'clock at night. The players are all in their rooms. Everything's gone quiet because they can hear this shuffling down the corridor and they're waiting for the dreaded knock on the door. If it came, you're gone. Next morning, space at the breakfast table. Anybody that argued, no comment. I mean... Uh, at the other end, we had Glenn Hoddle, of course, who wanted to meet everybody in the Bangor movies, the famous Gazza incident. But can you imagine being a player in that team and waiting for this knock on the door or waiting till the footsteps had gone past your room? Well, I mean, they talk about, you know, Roger Miller was even frightened of him. Um, if they saw him walking walking outside, they'd they'd walk the other direction, so they didn't have to kind of cross paths with him. And actually, looking through with it to, with today's eyes, it's an absolute miracle that Cameroon managed to do what they did, um, because there's all sorts of those things that happen that that seems crazy now. You think oh, that's not the way that you're going to get the best out of people, but it, I guess, it worked on fear almost. But I think there was probably part of it that the the language thing um, came into came into consideration because actually I think it worked for him not to discuss because actually he couldn't speak French or English that most of the Cameroonians could and, and, and they couldn't speak Russian. So I think that, that probably had a part to play. The, the squad dynamic fitting into the squad. There was a piece in the book about the man known as the miracle worker, as we know, Bora Milutinovic. Uh, who took all of this very seriously. Alexi Lalas is pulled aside by Bora's assistant and told, he wants you to cut your hair. Uh, and you can imagine Lalas's response to that, I'm outraged. But then after he's quietened down, he thought, hmm, I did it because I wanted to be on the team. And that night at the meeting, he walked in and Militinovic sees him, looks at him, nods, and he says... That's when I realised that I was in. It was a test. I passed the test. I was in the squad and I just regrew my hair anyway and nothing more was said. Yeah, and I think it's incredible, actually. I mean, again, it's, it's similar to the, the Nepanyashi thing with, with Cameroon in 1990 that I think it's very different in terms of, I think you perhaps could get away with things then that you might not get away with now. But um, actually, you know, Militinovic did that with, with Lalas. Um, and you'd think, you know, his Lalas's hair's got nothing to do with with his his manager, and um, but he also, you know, Lalas talks about Militinovic picking players based on how well they did in head tennis. Yes, um, which again is, is <laughs> seems crazy, but actually it wasn't necessarily the head tennis skills he was looking for, but it was those personal skills. And I guess when you assume that, let's say, ninety five percent of the players that are going to go and play a World Cup have got the talent to be able to do it. I guess it is looking beneath that and, and looking at the, at the player's character as well and, and how they'll fit in. And finally, let us end where we started, looking 
the greatest teams never to have won the World Cup with author Aidan Williams. Now, for many, mentioned the year 1986, and it brings back memories of Diego Maradona. But lest we forget the legendary Danish team of that time, in many people's eyes, pundits, journalists and coaches and the like, they were the favourites to win that tournament. I'm going to mention one more nation. Don't talk about one more nation. The Danes in 1986, which again, when we when we talk about great footballing teams of their time of the era, then arguably they could have stood quite happily alongside the the Dutch teams of the 70s. Qualifying though, again for them, remember like we mentioned with the Dutch, where they very nearly didn't qualify. Well, qualifying was really difficult for Denmark as well, USSR, Swiss, Ireland, Norway, and it was the was the other team. But there was that game, which was said to be the greatest ever World Cup qualifier, June 1985. Uh, Michael Laudrup calls it the game at the Parkins Stadium when uh, they beat the USSR uh, 4-2, Laudrup and Elkia, best striking partnership in Europe. But this was a team stuffed full of legendary names. Oh, wasn't it just? And and this was this was peak viewing for me. You, you talked about your sneak peeks of, of earlier World Cups when you were meant to be going to bed. Well, this, this was one for me where um, the, when Denmark played Uruguay in that World Cup late at night and I had to video it and, and get up early enough in the morning to watch it before school. They they were so absolutely majestic. Their style was magnificent. And this qualifier you're talking about, this was, uh, well, it's available on YouTube for anyone to watch. And it, it's it's well worth a look because it, it's, well, it's played out in a magnificent atmosphere. And it's two teams with excellent style, excellent approach to the game, excellent flowing play, but the skills on show uh, and the sort of unity in terms of how the Danish played together, how they complemented each other. Laudrup and Elkiar were were very different in uh, in style, but perfect together. Like Laudrup was the elegant, the silky one, the, the, the smoother of the two, if you like. He had the grace about him, but Elkiar was a, didn't, wasn't quite so graceful. He was a little more robust and, and slightly more direct. But equally, very, very skillful and, and talented with it, but a slightly different approach to things. But put them together, and it was just majestic. We, we had no Italian football coverage. He was uh, helping Verona to a Serie A title when we know that Laudrup did it uh, a bit later. But it wasn't only those two, was it? Morton Olsen. I, I think when I was growing up, because I remember Tottenham against um, Anderlecht in the UEFA Cup final, uh, being a Spurs fan, obviously I would, um, and he was one of he was one of the greats. This towering, graceful defender, uh, Soren Lerby, who was with Bayern Munich. I worked with him, by the way, in the World Cup in in nineteen ninety eight. Again, he, a great guy. We'll sit down and talk about this this period all day long. Frank Arneson uh, over at Ajax, great players. Absolutely. I'd add Jesper Olsen into that. Oh, yes, as well, yes. Yeah. Who'd come through at Ajax and obviously would go on to Manchester United. Um, yeah. Oh, there was a, a huge 
huge uh, amount of talent in this side. And this had been building for a long time. But as you rightly say, to, to those of us watching from here, it can appear as though it almost came from nowhere because we hadn't seen that much. So Denmark had obviously, they knocked England out of qualifying for the Euro 84. And that was where it probably first registered to a to British audience. But then we didn't get to see so much of them again until this because we didn't get to see Euro 84 uh, in the UK on our televisions, barring a couple of couple of games and some brief highlights. So we didn't really get to appreciate the full emergence of this Danish generation. Um, we probably wouldn't have seen much of their qualifying campaign, probably other than highlights of, of their games with Ireland, perhaps. And so when it came to this World Cup, it was as though it had just landed. Um, and yet we, we should have known about it because these players were playing at the top level. They were playing at great clubs and they were playing really, really well, but put them together. They, they've often, they've, they've talked as well about, and I'm sure Soren Lerby has probably said about how it was in the camp uh, to you, you know, is it was a fun, fun atmosphere. They, oh, they used to much. go there just for a fun time yeah. and not worry about the football, but now they, they were, they were worrying about the football, but they still had that fun time element to it. And I think that just pushed them another level because it was so relaxed. It was so, it was so fun. They, they clearly all enjoyed it. They enjoyed being together. They enjoyed playing together. And that, uh, I, I can't, I can't believe that that wasn't a huge contributing factor in how well they played and how, uh, and how magnificent they were, they were able to do it. Just the, the manner they did it, it was so sort of languid at times and uh, easygoing. Um, but that, again, that just adds to the appeal. It just makes them look extra cool. When you consider coming into that World Cup, many people were picking them as favourites. I mean, it's quite incredible. A first World Cup and your, and your favourites, uh, the football in, the home, in their home country had not long come off being amateur. Set Piontek, nobody knew too much about him, took over. Kurt Nielsen, that's right, was the guy he took over from. Um, and he'd come from uh, Germany, from St. Pauli, where he hadn't actually ripped up any trees. And bizarre, he was with Haiti for a couple of years as well. But there was a great quote. I don't know whether it was in your book or I saw it somewhere else. He noted that within the Danish camp, uh, the players and Danish people in particular uh, do not like the word discipline. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And that was exemplified in their style, their manner too. And as you say, this is a character. We were talking about Dutch character before. Well, this is the Danish character. They don't like that. They don't like to be told what to do. Uh, and then they come with a, a very German coach <laughs> who is obviously the, the exact opposite of that. Uh, but they complemented each other perfectly. I, I guess they changed each other <laughs> in some way. So Piontek became a bit less German and maybe they became a, li a little bit less um, rebelliously Danish. They, they still had that core essence, of course, and that's what led to the style and the way they played and, and how successful they were. And yeah, you're right. They, they were one of the favourites in many of the previews from those who, who had the knowledge to, to appreciate how good they were. Um, it's probably easy to forget now that Argentina, for all they did achieve that summer, weren't the standout favourite ahead of the tournament. Sure, they had a standout player, but Yes, they, they were in the mix, Denmark, Argentina, and, and a few others in the discussion of potential winners. I don't know whether you remember, but back in uh, 86, I remember about the TV coverage and listening to the, to the pundits and like, Laurie McMenemy was on uh, the, I think he was on the, the BBC. 
and Mick Shannon, and they kept banging on and on and on about the altitude. And obviously, if you've never actually been in a country with very high altitude, you have no idea about the effects of altitude. Piontek and his planning had had the Danish team running around with oxygen tanks on their back. Then the not necessarily the rot, but the some of the discontent started to filter in when they went to their training camp in Colombia, uh, where he <laughs> he severely restricted beer access. We we couldn't <laughs> get a beer, and it felt like a prison. We couldn't use the pool because there were guards with guns anywhere. And you can understand why some of the, the players started to feel a little bit disenfranchised even before they got there. <laughs> yes, I, I guess if you're, if you're used to national team duty being party time, <laughs> then this kind of preparation ahead of a World Cup is going to take a little bit of getting used to. Um, yeah, this is, I guess, any tournament preparation has this issue of how, how do you get the seriousness of it across uh, and the full preparation that needs to happen whilst also not losing the essence of what it is that's made you get there in the first place. And uh, yeah, a few beers was clearly part of the uh, part of the requirements for the Danish side, helping them relax. Back home, by the way, prior to them leaving, uh, they, they recorded a, a song called Recep 10, yes. uh, which actually went on to become the biggest selling single in Danish history. <laughs> well, perhaps this has become the the, uh, the replacement Danish national anthem for, for the football community anyway. And this is where the Danish dynamite term was coined, was part of this song. We are red, we are right, we are Danish. Danish dynamite. Danish dynamite. Brilliant. Uh, and, and obviously the fan element, they'd had this throughout the uh, Euro 84 summer in France as well. The, the numbers that had descended on on France to to drink their way and celebrate and party their way around. The Rolligans, they were called. Yes. Uh, uh, using, well, they, they, there was nothing hooligan about them whatsoever. But they, you know, they were borrowing that, the, the word to, to combine with their own fan term. It's and, it- it's strange, isn't it, how when we used to see those fans having such a great time, uh, they did the whole, you know, the singing, creating the atmosphere, having a load, you know, a few, well, loads of beer, let's be honest. Um, but there was never a whiff of any trouble, which was the complete opposite to us. And at the same time as well, yeah. you know, given the era we were in in our country at that time, the issues that we had, uh, you know, this World Cup was one year after Heysel, after all. Yes. clubs were banned from European competition. The national team uh, had plenty of issues with its followers as well. And yeah, to see this kind of fun atmosphere, it can't help but make you a bit jealous <laughs> and wish that that was you. But that helps uh, helps you want to jump on their bandwagon in terms of the team. Uh, because, it, it, yeah, it adds to the appeal. And you see this with, with, with various other countries in, in these tournaments as well, of just the sheer sense of fun and joy, the joy to be there. And maybe being from a country that hadn't had so much of this adds part of that. Uh, you could say similar about Ireland at, uh, at World Cup 1990 mm-hmm. and so on. You know, the, 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 there to have a fun time as well as enjoying what was going on and celebrating their success, but making sure they had a damn fun time doing it. Uh, and, oh, God, this, this Danish team and their followers 
Um, they certainly did that. So uh, Olsen, Lerby, Mulby, Jesper Olsen, Elkjar, Laudrup, Alan Siemensen, European Footballer of the Year, of course, a few years before Frank Arneson, Stephen Beck, all off. Uh, the game against Scotland, it was it was billed Souness against Mulby. Yeah, I mean, Mulby was a, a fantastic player. Uh, and he ended up speaking better, better Scouse than half the Liverpool squad in the end as well, uh, which was which was nice. Um, he he was a great player, but this game actually Denmark got a one nil victory, but this was actually one of the closest and hardest games they had. Um, and given how Scotland struggled overall, this it was a it was credit to them that they actually tested Denmark so much. Maybe Denmark was still struggling to get the um, the oxygen packs off their backs or something like that, and they weren't quite <laughs> ready for it yet. But uh, but Scotland gave them a real good test, uh, and Denmark, if anything, slightly fortunate, um, possibly to get away with a one 0 win. But you know, quality does show out, and there was plenty of it. And um, do you know Mulby was was yeah, chief amongst it. But I mean, you've listed so many names there, Tim, <laughs> of the, the great players that they had, and oh. Yeah. Well, after that game, by the way, there was a there was a formal dinner. There was local entertainment and what have you. Um, but the players were allowed for the first time uh, wife time, uh, which basically meant they had time <laughs> alone with their wives. So consider this: they're all sat around the table. They're all sharing a room. So apparently, the conversation around the dinner table that evening was about who goes first and how long you get. <laughs> it's well, fantastic. It is fantastic, yes. <laughs> and, and and look what they did in the next game, though. So there's obviously... Uruguay. <laughs> yeah, Uruguay. We should have done this more. What, uh, you can go in and find uh, the highlights of that game. You'll see uh, Bossio getting... Uh, a red card for the challenge. I think it was on Frank uh, Arneson. And um, I think John Helm and Billy McNeil were doing the, the, the commentary. What do you think? The man's a head case. <laughs> Can you imagine coming out with a term like that on the TV now? Oh, it's fantastic. But that Uruguay side was, was so sort of beautifully brutal weren't they? they they didn't they didn't care it seemed they didn't care what anyone thought they were just gonna they were gonna go after you no matter what uh they got their comeuppance i guess uh in in terms of this result and and you know it, an early sending off in their next game with scotland but you, you could say that that contributed to the extent of this victory but denmark I, I can't believe for a second they wouldn't have run rings around them anyway. The way they were playing at this point, it was it was absolutely magnificent. It was it was um, one of the quotes about this team is that it was like total football on on fast forward. Yes, you know, they'd taken yeah, what yeah. the Dutch were doing and they were just doing it quicker, and then people couldn't live with them. And this Uruguay side certainly couldn't live with them. Um, it, it was it was absolutely majestic. Loudrup, uh, some of the the play here and, and the goal. When he was running around the defence, then round the goalie, and then just sliding it in, absolute beauty, perfection. It was it was wonderful. Sure, the red card must have contributed a little, but you know Denmark would have would have taken them to the cleaners anyway. So at the end of that group, the the group stage, remember because we were into knockout games for the first time in '86, the second group phase had been consigned to to history. And this has been a topic of discussion down the years. What what on earth happened 
in that game <laughs> against Spain. Uh, El Kiar simply just said, you know, on on any day you you can lose to Spain. That is not an issue. The way it happened for us, it was utterly ridiculous to lose by five goals to one. Arneson's red card and missing the game, how big a loss was he? That was due to his wife's illness, yeah. by the way, wasn't it? Suspected meningitis yes. she was in. I think she picked it up when she was staying with friends in, in Mexico, but that didn't help. And so losing Arneson was key. Oh, very much so. And yeah, you're quite right. His head was elsewhere and probably shouldn't have played in that West Germany game that didn't massively matter other than who won the group. And People have, have, have speculated later of whether Denmark should have or shouldn't have tried to win that game to get the easier draw. But uh, given what West Germany ended up reaching and who they had to play in the last 16, which was Morocco. But, you know, you didn't you don't know all those permutations at the time. And Denmark were on a roll. They, as Jan Molby said, they felt they could beat anybody um, and they beat West Germany. Uh, but they did lose Arneson and that was crucial. But in this game against Spain, they, they'd scored a, a Jesper Olsen penalty. Um, they were playing fluid attacking football. It had seemed at that point that they would just go on and do what they what they do and just carry on again. They got hit uh, by a mistake. Jesper Olsen, uh, having scored a penalty for Denmark, oh, then dear. basically gave, <laughs> oh, gave a, a, away a goal to Spain. He, the back he pass. The, pass. <laughs> the, the back pass. Well, yes. The back pass to to Emilio Butraguelio, which was not a good idea. He didn't look. He didn't look. His goalkeeper wasn't where he thought he was, uh, and he instead passed the ball straight to Butraguelio uh, with a goal at his mercy. Um, but okay, a one-one. They they they'd had that mistake. Uh, they'd let Spain back in when they didn't have to, but they didn't just implode immediately. They didn't go chasing it immediately. They still carried on as they were, and if. It's interesting to watch this game back because it isn't how your mind thinks it probably would have gone uh, in that they, they they went a little bit headless chicken. That maybe came towards the end, but not at this point. They kept playing the way they did. They kept having control. They kept probing and they kept creating the chances. It didn't quite come for them. Um, but Ruguenio had the game of his life, unfortunately, for Denmark as well. He scored well, four, four goals. in the end, yeah. which is an uh, astonishing achievement. I mean, he was a, a very good striker, of course, but... When he got another goal for Spain, and then uh, and then they they got three one up, it was only by that stage where Denmark started to panic a little bit and started to adjust and started to to push on a little more recklessly, and that's when they got picked off with the with the other goals to make the score look rather ridiculous, um, given how how talented they were. But you know it, they hadn't gone like this for the whole of the second half or anything crazy like that. It was only very late on. Uh, which you know that contributed to the scoreline and makes it look unfortunate <laughs> from a Danish perspective. Yes, for Olsen, I was yeah. going to say, has suffered every <laughs> minute <laughs> since that part, and it's it's used, isn't it, as a it is, as a term, yeah. isn't it, to describe anyone that that drops a real clangor. It's a yes, for Olsen. He's done a yes, for Olsen. But one other thing which surprised me about this. Uh, build up to this game is the two teams were staying in the same hotel uh, and they would literally wave at each other uh, across the pool I mean it, it seems quite <laughs> incredible now that that was allowed to happen even then 
I guess organization wasn't quite what it became in those days. But yeah, it does make it all seem a little haphazard, doesn't it? That uh, you just rumble up, and oh, look, there's the opposition. <laughs> Let's have a good chat. Let's have a beer. Maybe they had a good few beers afterwards. I don't know. Uh, maybe that's another story. But yeah, that is remarkable that that would be allowed to happen or be able to happen. You can imagine the, the things that could have gone on. Um, the, the spiking of drinks or food or anything like that. I want to end on on one player uh, because when we talk about that World Cup, I mean, obviously everybody is is you know it's Diego Maradona's World Cup, and you know we all know about the history of the tournament and the goals that he scored. But it's funny if you look to some of the players that came in the generation after, maybe those that grew up watching uh, the teams of the eighties and came through in the nineties and the two thousands. When you talk about the greatest ever players, uh, Andres Iniesta was was asked, and this actually wasn't that long ago, who was the greatest player of all time? And he turned around without any hesitation and just said, oh, Michael Laudrup. <laughs> and, and this was a time of great number 10s. He was one of a number at this era. You know, Platini was obviously... Um, one of the world's finest just, yes. just prior. I guess he was slightly on the downward by the time of 86, but you know, his real peak in 84, what a great player. You had Francescoli. Uh, Zico was still just about on the scene. Glenn. Loudrop. Glenn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get Glenn in. <laughs> well, quite right, yes. You know, elegance and style, absolutely. There, there was a, a, plenty of that. Um, you, you may be elevating him slightly into a, another pantheon here, <laughs> possibly, but he was good. But this was a great era for number 10s, mm. and Laudrup was, was certainly right in there. I and mean, he was younger than a few of those I'm mentioning. So, you know, his time carried on a little bit further into the future than then where maybe football moved away from such artistry uh, into a little more pragmatic approach. But at this time, he was another off the sort of conveyor belt of, of number 10 talent in the world that, that just made it a great time for watching football. It was a great time for this kind of creative expression um, and style. Uh, and yeah, Laudrup, he, he was elegance personified. And that brings us to the end of this World Cup edition of the podcast. Hope you've enjoyed listening to the selection of authors we've had on today. And remember, all of the books that we have talked about are out and available now by all good bookstores. And that is it. Once again, thanks to our sponsors, Prime Podcast at primepodcast.co.uk. If you are thinking of producing your own podcast, want any information about putting a podcast together, then they are the people to speak to. And you can find them, as we said, at the website, www.primepodcast.co.uk. The next edition of the podcast is going to be a boxing special, so keep your eyes out for that. In the meantime, until next time, from me, Tim Cable. Bye-bye for now.